Well, hey everyone, my name is Norton and this is part 2B of our series, People of the Book. And in part two, we tackle the question of who compiled the Bible? How, how did it get put together or compiled? How did the books that were written by ancient Israelites and Christians go from just being books to be included in the Bible? And sometimes this topic is called the issue of the canon. Uh, that's uh, C-A-N-O-N, canon like the camera company. Uh, but the word canon here is actually an ancient Greek word. And it meant measuring stick or uh, like a ruler that carpenters would use or architects would use. Uh, and this is the word used to describe which books are in the Old Testament and New Testament. So the idea are is uh, what are the books that are going to guide our faith that will be like the measuring rod or the rule of faith. And so early Christians, uh, when they talked about the canon, they were talking about uh, which books were in the canon, the books that have been accepted as the books of the Bible. So sometimes you'll hear this word. Um, scholars still use the word canon uh, today. Uh, this whole topic is called the topic of canonicity. Um, that's a fancy word. Uh, you'll also hear the word canonical. Uh, that refers to a book that is in the canon or is in the Bible. So, for example, um, you might hear that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are canonical gospels, uh, whereas the Gospel of Thomas, which we discussed in the last message, um, was not included in the Bible or the New Testament, and so it is not canonical. Uh, it was not accepted into the canon. So just a little background on a really technical, fancy, scholarly word there, because you might hear it when you hear discussions about this whole topic. And if you want to dig deeper, like if you want to take a deep dive and learn more, I mean, the, the, the last message where I just gave an overview of Old Testament, New Testament, we just sort of skimmed the surface. But there, if you want to do a deep dive... Uh, there's a book by a scholar named F.F. F. Bruce. Uh, he was a very distinguished New Testament scholar. Um, and the book is called The Canon of Scripture. The Canon of Scripture. And it's it's basically the definitive book um, that gives a history uh, into all of these books that were compiled into the Old Testament and the New Testament and why other books were not included. Now, we covered the Old Testament and New Testament in the last message, uh, so today I want to address a third set of books that from time to time raises questions and can create a lot of confusion, and I'm talking about a group of books called the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha. Uh, this is a group of books that is included believe it or not, in some versions of the Bible. Maybe you've never even seen it or heard about it, um, but in Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic or Orthodox versions of the Bible, there are a few different books. Um, the Apocrypha includes seven whole books, about seven, and I, I say about because it's slightly different for Catholic Christians and for Orthodox Christians. There's a, there's a there's some slight differences there. And then there's a few other Old Testament books that have some extra sections that have been added. So if you take a few extra sections uh, that have been added and, and then you take the extra whole books, you've got about 15 or so different writings 
sometimes they're included in a section all by themselves or all by itself called the Apocrypha. And it's usually put right in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, sometimes these books are uh, and the sections are just added right into the middle of the Old Testament. They're added at various places into the Old Testament or the parts that are added to the books are just are just added to the books and you wouldn't have known it. Now, again, if you grew up Protestant, so Protestant would be like um, a mainline denomination uh, in the United States or evangelical or Pentecostal, um, then and, and you use maybe just the NIV. Uh, version of the Bible or, or an ESV version of the Bible or translation like that, then you never saw these writings. They're not included in any of those contemporary modern translations. Um, but there are other versions of the Bible that do include these books. So maybe you are totally confused by now as to why some Bibles have these writings called the Apocrypha and why some don't. And it is a confusing topic. And so that's all we're going to talk about in the podcast today is these books called the Apocrypha. And I want to answer a whole bunch of questions like, where did these books come from? What are these books? What are they about? Uh, Why are they connected to the Old Testament? How did they get included in some Bibles but not in others? Uh, Why are they called the Apocrypha? What does that word even mean? And then um, how should we think about these writings today? So we have a ton of history to cover. Uh, I hope it's helpful and engaging and fun. There's some really interesting um, things to talk about and learn and explore today. So let's jump right in. Let's start with where these books came from. Uh, These are Jewish writings that were primarily written during the third Uh, second or first centuries BC. So this is the time right before Jesus. This is that crucial time period we discussed in the last message when the Jewish people are ruled uh, by foreign rulers. They're not really an independent nation except for just a a few years in there, but they're ruled by Persian rulers and then a group of rulers called the Seleucids and and then uh, uh, the Greeks and then the Seleucids and then uh, the Romans. And um, and it's during these centuries, before, right before Jesus, that they are in the process of editing and compiling all of the books of the law, the Torah, uh, the prophets, which also included their historical books, and the writings. Um, and they preserved these books and put them together, and that's what became the Hebrew Bible. Um, now, quick side note, remember, the nature of writing and, and books is just so different in the ancient world than it is today. Um, There are not a lot of copies of these books. They're written on papyri, uh, and and those are expensive, and those uh, don't last very long. And and so, um, and not everyone can read. In fact, most people can't read. So people don't have copies of the Bible in their houses. Um, There's maybe just a few copies of certain scrolls or certain books that exist in central locations. And so maybe the leaders that are, uh, the Jewish leaders that are compiling the the Hebrew Bible together, they're in Jerusalem and they have a scroll with the book of Ruth on it. Uh, But maybe the scroll is fading. Maybe it's getting old. Maybe it's gotten ripped in certain places. Maybe it becomes lost. We know that during the Jewish revolt in the second century, 
uh, BC, there was a foreign ruler, um, Antiochus Epiphanes, who attacked Jerusalem. He came in, he desecrated the Jewish temple, and he tried to burn all of the Jewish writings and scrolls that he could find. And so maybe during this time, all the copies that, that existed of the book of Ruth, the scrolls in Jerusalem were burned and destroyed. And, and so um, they knew that this story existed. They knew these narratives existed. And they hoped there were copies kept by priests in other villages. And they had to go get those copies to preserve this writing. So just, just think about how different the world is at this time. So when we talk about collecting these books. Um, They're not books like we have today. Um, Later, uh, there will be codices that are kind of like books, but these are all at this time scrolls, individual scrolls, and they're compiling them together, and they don't have a lot of copies. They're fragile. They're expensive. They're not easily produced. So this is a very labor-intensive, meticulous process, which is why it doesn't happen over a weekend or a month or even a few years. This, you know, this this takes a long time. But it's during these centuries, in the third, second, first century, that the Hebrew Bible is being compiled. And at the same time, there's some other Jewish works that are written or recorded. And let me describe to you some of these books or works. Uh, there's a book called Tobit. Uh, Tobit is the story of an Israelite that lived in the 8th century. So in the middle of w- what the Old Testament describes, uh, many centuries before. It, um, this book describes the life and faith of a man named Tobit. Uh, it describes his family. His son, um, Tobias, gets married uh, to a woman named Sarah. It describes Sarah's life and Sarah's family. Um, now, this book was not actually written in the 8th century. Uh, all the evidence suggests the book of Tobit was just written and recorded in the 2nd century. We don't know if the story of Tobit had been passed down through oral tradition or kept in some form or fashion, and this is when it's first recorded. Um, you know, Some people think maybe it's just fiction. It's a made-up story. It didn't actually happen. Uh, we just don't know, but there's the book of Tobit that is written during this time. Um, there's a book called Judith which is about a clever Jewish woman named Judith uh, who helps save Jews from oppression. And uh, when Judith's story takes place is a little bit more unclear because parts of the book of Judith um, describe her living in the 7th or the 6th century B.C., but there's other parts of the book of Judith that describe her living about the same time as the Jewish revolt in the 2nd century Um, And and there's some other aspects of this book of Judith that have led some scholars to see it as as definitely a work of fiction, Um, or or maybe seen uh, as a work that's that's more like a parable. Uh, It's a parable that's not meant to be taken historically, but is meant to give the people, the Jewish people, um, faith and courage and hope uh, during this time. Uh, There are a couple of other books. Um, There's wisdom books. One of them is called The Wisdom of Solomon, or or for short, it's just referred to as wisdom. There's another book called Ecclesiasticus, which is different than Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book in the Old Testament. Ecclesiasticus is a different book. Um, It's also called the book of Sirach, um, or Ben Sirah, because it's thought to be written by a sage, a wise man named Ben Sirah. 
um, or Yeshua, the son of Sirah. That's what Ben Sirah means. Uh, so these two books, Wisdom and Sirach, um, are wisdom books. They're kind of like the book of Proverbs. Uh, but the earliest copies and references that we have to these two books are from the second century. They seem to be composed at that time. Um, then there's the books of First and Second Maccabees. Uh, these two books essentially tell the story of the Maccabean revolt that took place in the second century, where for a few years the Jewish people won their uh, independence. Um, and, and then there's, as I said, some additions to books. So those that I just described are, are, are sort of whole books. And then uh, there are three additions to the book of Daniel. Um, so there's a prayer that's added right in the middle of Daniel. Uh, there's a story about a woman named Susanna, and that's added to the beginning of Daniel. And then there's another story called Bell and the Dragon, uh, which to me sounds like a great band name. Uh, but this is also um, uh, included as part of the book of Daniel. It's added to the end of Daniel. Uh, there's some additions made to the book of Jeremiah. There's some additions made to the book of Esther. So these are writings that appear at this same time the Hebrew Bible is being put together. But here's what sets these specific books and these additions to Old Testament books apart. We know that none of these books or additions were ever accepted into the Hebrew Bible by Jews. When the Hebrew Bible is put together, these additions are not included in Daniel or Esther or in Jeremiah. And these books, Tobit and Judith and First and Second Maccabees and Wisdom and Sirach, they, they are not included in the Hebrew Bible. So, so these works, and we later call them the works of the Apocrypha, they're not called that at this time, but these works were never considered scripture by the Jewish people. And there's tons of evidence for that. There's not even really a significant debate. Uh, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts we have of the Hebrew Bible, or, or what we call the Old Testament, do not include these books or these editions. All the descriptions that we have of the Hebrew Bible from just before and around the time of Jesus, do not include these books. We have lists that different uh, Hebrew scholars give of all the books in the Hebrew Bible, and it doesn't include any of these books. Um, when Jesus himself quotes scripture, he says, as it was said, and as it is written, and he referred, he never quotes any of these apocryphal books. And it's not just Jesus, uh, there's others. Uh, Josephus is a famous Jewish historian who lives just after the time of Jesus, and he describes the books of the Hebrew Bible, and he does not include any of these books. And in fact, he even sheds light on why some of these other books, probably referring to the Apocrypha, were not included in the Hebrew Bible. Listen to what he writes. This comes from one of Josephus' uh, historical writings. He says, and I'm quoting here, from Artaxerxes to our own times... Uh, parentheses, uh, Artaxerxes was a Persian king who ruled in the 400s BC. So about uh, the time after the exile and after the Jews had returned from the exile, sort of when the Old Testament history ends. So about the 400s to Josephus's own time, the first century AD. So he says, from Artaxerxes to our own times, a complete history has been written. 
He's probably referring to First and Second Maccabees there, maybe some of these other books. But it has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. End quote. And here's what that means. Josephus is basically saying these books are not on par with the books of the Hebrew Bible because they're not inspired by God in the same way. That's what he means when he talks about the succession of prophets, meaning God spoke through the authors of the Hebrew Bible, but during the third and second and first century, God didn't speak through these later authors and these later writings. And it's not that they're bad writings. They're good. They're important. We should keep them. We should read them. They're just not inspired by God in the way scripture is. And that's why they're not part of the Hebrew Bible. (laughs) Which obviously brings us to the question, well, how in the world did they get added to the Bible? Why are they included in some Bibles today? Great question. Uh, When the Hebrew Bible was collected in about the second century BC, um, there are a lot of Jews that are living outside of Palestine. There's a community of Jews that fled uh, when the Babylonians took over and they never returned. Their descendants never returned. And many of them, including Jews who even did move back to Palestine, in fact, most of them, almost all of them, speak Greek as their first language. You see, by Jesus' time, Greek, and really even by the 2nd and 1st century BC, Greek had become the common language in that whole part of the world. It had become the trade language. Greek culture had such a powerful influence because of Alexander the Great conquering that part of the world. Greek culture had such a powerful influence that if you did business, if you traded goods, if you wanted to read the works of philosophers, if you went to school, you learned Greek. So once the Hebrew Bible is compiled and collected and copied and taught, some Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt, which was a a very large and powerful city at that time, a city with a, a large population of Jews, some of the Jews living there decided to create a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So Quite obviously, the Hebrew Bible is written in Hebrew, and so they decide they're going to translate it from Hebrew into Greek so that Jewish people who now, for the most part, speak and read Greek as much as or even more than Hebrew can read the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. So scholars in Alexandria work on this Greek translation of the Bible. Um, Legend has it that there were 70 scholars total. So in Greek, it's come, it becomes known as the translation of the 70. Um, it's often called simply the Greek Old Testament, and later it will be called the Septuagint, because in Latin, the word Septuagint means 70. This is the most common name of this Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And the Septuagint becomes as important, maybe even more important, than the original Hebrew scriptures. Many of the the famous Jewish scholars that live outside of Jerusalem, they primarily speak Greek. So this becomes the translation that they use. Many Jews, even in Israel, spoke Greek, right? All of the first writings of the Bible, of the New Testament, all the gospel accounts and Paul's letters, they're written in what? They're written in Greek. 
If you were literate, you probably learned Greek. In fact, it's possible that many synagogues, even within Israel, used this translation. Now, they might have had both. Um, Certainly, some of the scribes and the Pharisees knew Hebrew and learned Hebrew, and there were schools that still taught Hebrew. But this Greek version of the old translation became very important, and the best scribes would have learned both. Paul himself grew up learning Greek. As a Pharisee, he studied under a rabbi. He would have learned Hebrew, but Paul knew both Greek and Hebrew. And believe it or not, when Paul quotes the Old Testament in his letters, do you know what version of the Bible he's quoting? He quotes the Septuagint. That's how important it is. He's not quoting from the original Hebrew, and we know this. We can see the differences in language. He's quoting the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Essentially, the Septuagint is the NIV of Jesus' day. It's what everyone would have read and everyone would have used. And this will only grow and increase in this new Christian movement as you go forward in history. Because while all of the earliest Christians in the early part of the first century were Jews, once you get to the late first century and the second and third century, Almost all of the people that are becoming Christians are not Jews anymore. They're Gentiles. The people living in the Roman Empire that are joining the early church are not Jewish. So they don't grow up learning Hebrew at all. All they know of the Old Testament is the Greek Septuagint translation. To them, that's the Old Testament. So almost every major church father, when you read writings from the first and second and third century from church fathers that wrote uh, these, these scholarly works or these theological works, when they quote the Old Testament, they're quoting the Greek Septuagint. And in fact, almost all of the most important church father writings are written in Greek to begin with. Now, this is not a sidetrack. The reason I'm spending so much time telling you about the Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, is because when Jewish scholars translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, when the Septuagint was first developed out of Alexandria, they made a couple of changes. The first change they made was they changed the order of the Old Testament books to be more chronological. They had the the law... And then they added the historical writings, and then they put some of the poetic writings, and then they put the prophets. So they organized the books of the Old Testament to be in a more chronological order, and this is where we get the order of the Old Testament today. It wasn't actually Christians that changed the order. That's not why the order of a Christian Old Testament is slightly different than a Hebrew Bible. Christians were just following the revised order of the Septuagint, which was the primary version of the Hebrew Bible they read. But that's not the most important change. That's just a formatting change. Here's the second major change. The translators of the Septuagint decided to also translate the books of Tobit and Judith and Wisdom and Sirach and First and Second Maccabees and the additions to Daniel and Jeremiah and Esther. Now, there are some big questions about this uh, because we don't have 
the original Hebrew versions of some of these apocryphal books. All we have are the Greek versions. So either Hebrew versions first existed and they were translated by the people that translated the Greek, uh, the Old Testament into Greek, the Septuagint translators, and then they included the translated versions with the Old Testament. But it's also possible, and scholars think it's even likely, that some of these apocryphal books were not even written in Hebrew to begin with, that they were actually first composed in Greek. There's not a Hebrew version behind them. They were first written down in Greek. So either they were translated into Greek by the Septuagint translators, or they were simply added to the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But either way, these books were included in the Septuagint, even though they did not exist in the original Hebrew Bible, and even though they continue to not exist as the Hebrew Bible continues to be copied and circulated and used by Hebrew scholars. Now, the big mystery is this. We don't really know why the apocryphal books were included in the Septuagint. It's possible that the Jews living in Alexandria at that time were of different thinking than the Jews in Palestine, and they thought that these books should have been included in the Hebrew Bible, and so that's why they translated them or included them in their version of the Old Testament. Some scholars hypothesize that, uh, but there's no evidence of that. There's no suggestion that there was a big debate and they were trying to add these books to the Old Testament. In fact, there was one really important Jewish philosopher that lived in Alexandria at the exact same time of Jesus. His name is Philo. He's very well known. He writes a number of important Jewish philosophical works. And all he ever used was a Septuagint. He wrote in Greek. Um, we're not even sure he really knew Hebrew. Um, so all he ever used was the Septuagint when he refers to the Bible and he never talks about the apocryphal books being a part of the Bible. In fact, there's one time where he's writing and he says there are some extra books that we should read and that would be helpful to our faith, but those extra books are not part of the Bible. So we think he probably is talking about the Apocrypha. So our best guess is that these apocryphal books were included in the Greek Old Testament because they were seen as useful but they were never intended to be considered part of the Hebrew Bible. After all, uh, the scholars that did know Hebrew, right, that did have access to Hebrew scrolls, never included these books in their scripture. And it's been that way all throughout history. So they're never added into the Hebrew versions of the Bible. The Hebrew Bible that's used throughout history and even still today by Jews in synagogues does not include the Apocrypha. And so Jews have never really seen them as part of the Hebrew Bible. Now, Jews didn't reject the Apocrypha. They just didn't consider them part of the Hebrew Bible. They still read them. They still thought they were helpful. They still thought they were good stories. They thought they told a good history of that time period in the second century. After all, the story of Hanukkah is based on the narrative and the history told in First and Second Maccabees. And Jews celebrate that part of their history, right? They just don't consider these apocryphal books as part of Scripture. But the influence of the Septuagint on Jews during Jesus' time 
And then especially it skyrockets in influence on the early Christians in the first and second and third centuries. The influence of the Septuagint is so big that the Apocrypha slowly begin to take on a canonical status. See, I used the word there. Most Christians who only read the Old Testament in Greek were reading the Septuagint. And when they read the Septuagint, they got to Judith or they got to Sirach or they got to 1 Maccabees and they just didn't make any differentiation between these books or the accepted Old Testament books. Perhaps as time go, went on, many of them didn't even know that this wasn't part of the Hebrew Bible. And so a lot of early Christian leaders who are Gentiles do not know Hebrew. They quote the Old Testament in their own writings, and so they're quoting the Septuagint. And so oftentimes, they're actually quoting the apocryphal books. You see all sorts of quotes or references uh, to Wisdom, to Sirach, to First and Second Maccabees, to these books. And early Christian leaders, they don't make any distinction. They don't like pause and say, by the way, this is the Apocrypha and we don't accept it in the Old Testament. They just say, as it is written in Scripture. And so the apocryphal books began to take on this scriptural status. There's no sense that there's anything different about these books. And so you have many Christian leaders in the first few centuries describing these books as actually being part of the Old Testament because the Septuagint is really the only version of the Old Testament they know. Now, let me tell you the story of another guy. A guy named Jerome. Uh, Jerome is born in about 347 AD. I weren't totally sure what year he's born in. And we know he lives to about 420 AD. So he lives uh, a few hundred years after Jesus. Uh, He lives during this time period when Christianity has just become accepted within the Roman Empire. Um... Um, Even in the late 300s, Christianity will become the official religion of the Roman Empire. And by this time, the New Testament is pretty well accepted by everyone, as we talked about in the last message. Jerome's parents are wealthy. He gets a really good education in Rome growing up. Uh, He knows Latin. He knows Greek. He learns both languages well. Um, which, by the way, Greek continues to dominate in the eastern part of the empire. So that continues to be the dominant language in uh, spoken and written in what is today Egypt and the Middle East and Turkey and Greece. But in the western part of the empire, Latin begins to dominate in what we now call Italy and northern Africa and Europe. And so by the 400s, you start to see many Christian theologians and writers in the Western part of the empire, like Augustine, are writing in Latin. They're no longer writing in Greek. Now, Jerome is a young scholar. And uh, when he gets to his 20s or or early 30s, he decides to travel east to increase his knowledge. Um, He stops and lives in the town and the city of Antioch for some time. Antioch is in modern Turkey. It was a very large and influential city at that time. In fact, Antioch is where followers of Jesus in the first century were first called Christians. And while he's in Antioch, two of Jerome's friends die 
from a terrible illness. And in fact, Jerome himself gets this illness and he's very sick. It's almost like he's on his deathbed as far as we can tell. But Jerome recovers. And when he does, it's like a wake-up call. And, and he decides at that moment in his life, he's not going to study secular literature anymore. He was studying all sorts of types of literature and philosophy. He's not going to study secular literature anymore. He's going to give himself completely to God and to studying the Bible. And it's at this time he basically becomes a hermit. He goes and he lives this monastic, ascetic lifestyle in the desert east of Antioch. He learns Hebrew during this time. He learns uh, Aramaic, which is a different dialect, a Semitic dialect that was spoken in that area and even during the time of Jesus. After five years of living in the desert, he returns to Antioch and then he returns to Constantinople, uh, which is, but will become the capital, sort of the, the eastern part of the empire. And then he returns to Rome and he becomes this very well-known biblical scholar. In fact, the Pope in Rome at that time asks Jerome to work on a Latin version of the New Testament and then a Latin version of the Psalms. So Jerome is translating the New Testament from Greek, it's usually written in Greek, into Latin. And then for the Psalms, he's using the Septuagint, right? So the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the original Hebrew, and he's now using a Greek translation and converting it into Latin. And uh, after a few years, the Pope that he's been working under and working with dies. And Jerome takes this occasion to leave Rome. He's tired of living in the big city. He's tired of serving the big institution of the church. Uh, he has that ascetic bent and he becomes disillusioned with Rome and the institution and the papacy and all of these things. And so he leaves Rome. He travels back east. He settles in Palestine in the little village of Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. And he establishes a monastery there, and he spends the rest of his life studying and translating the Bible. He decides to keep working on the Old Testament. He decides that he's going to produce a good Latin version of the Old Testament. But he wants to do it right and so he realizes in order to do it right, he shouldn't be translating from the Greek Septuagint, which is already a translation of the Hebrew. He decides to translate directly from the Hebrew Bible, which meant he had to be not just good at Hebrew, but excellent, an expert, proficient at Hebrew. And so he even tells us that during this time of his life, several Jews um, he asked several Jews who are friends to come and give him lessons at, in Hebrew. And sometimes this took place secretly because other Jews might not like the idea of a Jew giving help to a Christian who's translating the Old Testament into Latin for use by the Christian community. Now, he gets this help. He becomes an expert in, in, in Hebrew. And as Jerome translates the Old Testament directly from the Hebrew manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible... What do you think he realizes? <laughs> well, he realizes very quickly that the Hebrew Bible is slightly different than the Septuagint, which he is so familiar with. The Septuagint has a few of these extra books, and it even has a few of these extra parts or additions to books. And so he's at a crossroads. Should Jerome include these extra books and these extra additions to books that are in the Septuagint, 
but not in the Hebrew Bible? Should he include those in his new Latin translation? Everyone else is used to the Septuagint, so it wouldn't be strange at all. It might be strange to not include them in his Latin translation. And Jerome decides to steer a middle course. He decides to translate the apocryphal books into Latin, and he has to do that from the Greek because there's not a Hebrew basis for the apocryphal books. But in his version, his Latin version of the Old Testament, he includes an introduction. He includes an introduction to the entire Old Testament and an introduction to individual books. Where he, And in the introduction to the Old Testament, he lists the number of books in the Old Testament and he lists the same books as the Hebrew Bible. And he makes it clear that the additional apocryphal books are not in the Hebrew Bible. In fact, in his introduction, he literally says, quote, these books should be set apart as apocrypha. And this is the time where we start first seeing this word apocrypha. They're not; These books are not called the apocrypha in the time of Jesus. They're just Jewish writings that are included in the Septuagint. Um, this word apocrypha uh, literally means hidden or secret, <laughs> which honestly isn't a great description of these books. Um, we don't know why these books were first called hidden or secret. Um, it's possible that this refers to the Jewish revolt right? When the books uh, of the law and the Bible uh, were destroyed and there were some books kept hidden. And so maybe these were some books that were kept hidden. Um, we just don't know where this initial reference of calling them apocrypha or apocryphal comes from. But we know that the way that Jerome and others start using it is not to refer to any sort of hidden or secret status, but simply to, to suggest that these are extra books and additions That's what apocryphal means to them. These are extra books and additions that are not a part of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. So Jerome includes them in his Latin translation, but he says they should be set apart. In fact, he gets even more clear. In his introduction to the wisdom books of the Old Testament, Job and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and Proverbs, Jerome writes that the book of Sirach was originally written in Hebrew, but the wisdom of Solomon wasn't. The wisdom of Solomon is originally written in Greek, and so Jerome says, we don't even know who wrote it. Maybe Philo wrote it. But then here's what he says about these two books of Apocrypha, uh, the book of wisdom and the book um, of Sirach. Quote, Therefore, as the church indeed reads Judith, Tobit and the books of Maccabees, but does not receive them among the canonical books, so let it also read these two volumes for the edification of people, but not for establishing the authority of ecclesiastical dogmas. End quote. Here's what Jerome is saying. These apocryphal books, we can read them. They can be helpful, but they're not part of the Bible. And we should not establish any ecclesiastical dogma, which simply just means doctrine or theology or or church beliefs. We should not establish any doctrine based on these apocryphal books the way we do with the other books of the Bible. So Jerome finishes his Latin translation in about 410 A.D., 
He also writes a bunch of commentaries on the Old Testament before he dies a few years later. But it is his Latin translation that becomes known as the Latin Vulgate. Uh, Vulgate in um, Latin simply means the most commonly used work or the commonly used translation. The most easily accessible commonly used translation among Latin speaking and reading people in the 5th century when it's produced and begins to be copied. And Latin will become the official language of the Western church from this time on. All theological writings from this time on will be written, in, in at least in the West, will be written in Latin. And the Latin Vulgate, Jerome's translation, will become the translation of the Bible that is used universally by Christians, Catholic Christians at least, for the next 1,500 years. You see, if you happen to grow up before the 1960s and you were Roman Catholic and you went to a Catholic mass, that mass was in Latin. It's only after the 1960s that um, mass in the United States after uh, Vatican II Council that um, things changed and they began to do mass in English and other languages. Before that, it was in Latin. And the version of the Bible that you would have heard read would have been Jerome's Latin Vulgate. Now, as I said, Jerome includes the Apocrypha in the Latin Vulgate, but he also makes it clear that these books and these editions were not part of the Hebrew Bible and should not be the basis of Christian beliefs and doctrine. But wouldn't you know, The same thing that happened with the Greek Septuagint happens with the Latin Vulgate. This very nuanced explanation of the key difference between the books of the Hebrew Bible, these are sacred, these are inspired by God, these are set apart, these should guide our faith and doctrine, and the apocryphal books... These are not sacred. These are not scripture. These are not part of the canon. These should not guide our doctrine. These can be read for the purposes of edification or helpfulness, but they don't have the same status. This very nuanced explanation over time gets lost. And over the centuries, most Christians and church leaders will continue to read and cite the Apocrypha as simply being part of of the Old Testament part of the Bible. And this will be true in the Eastern Orthodox Church as well, where they don't even use the Latin translation. They just continue to use the Septuagint as the main translation of the Old Testament. Now, that leads us to the 16th century. And there's one more important historic development to talk about, and this will explain where things stand today, and then we'll wrap things up. In the 1500s, there is a significant movement that takes place in Europe called the Reformation. Uh, One of the key leaders is Martin Luther. You've heard his name before. Not Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Martin Luther living in the 15th century, the German. um, Early on, he's a monk in the Catholic Church, and then he becomes a reformer. Uh, Luther really launches the the Protestant Reformation. And there's other leaders and a lot of other people involved. But Luther, in some ways, launches it because he begins by protesting against the use of indulgences in the Catholic Church. 
Uh, real quickly, an indulgence was something you could buy. It was where you could essentially buy your forgiveness from God. You would donate money to the church And the church says, if you donate this amount of money to us, God will be really happy with you and your sins will be forgiven and you will not have to spend as much time in purgatory working off all of your unrepentant sins after you die. Now, Luther hates this idea because he sees that this is just abusive church leaders using the idea of God's forgiveness and God's salvation and the threat of purgatory to get rich. And there's other things about medieval Christianity that Luther begins to point out are wrong and are abusive and are unbiblical. And one of the rallying cries for Martin Luther and for the movement that he starts is sola scriptura which means the Bible or Scripture alone, which essentially means Scripture alone should determine and shape our faith and belief and our practices. And if there's something that the church is doing that's not found in the Bible, then we need to give it up. And of course, indulgences uh, are not found in the Bible, in Luther's mind. And And there's many other things that he begins to challenge that he thinks are not found in the Bible and that need to be given up. And so naturally, this renews all sorts of questions about, well, what is the Bible? And what's not the Bible, right? If we're going back to the Bible and we should only base our faith and practices and doctrine on what's in the Bible, we need to get really clear about what is the Bible, And this also begins to raise very specific questions about the Apocrypha. Because wouldn't you know it, there's a passage in 2 Maccabees that talks about offering prayers and sacrifices for the dead so that their sins can be forgiven. This is an idea that's not really found in any of the other Old Testament or New Testament books that you should pray for the dead or you should do something for the dead or that someone's sins can be forgiven after they're dead. In fact, this becomes one of the most important passages during medieval uh, Christianity to support the idea of purgatory, that you have to go to this place and pay off your sins after you die. And so Luther comes along and says, hey, this whole doctrine, this whole idea of indulgences and this whole doctrine of purgatory is based on a book that wasn't even in the Hebrew Bible. We built a whole theology of the afterlife and sin and forgiveness and all of these crazy ideas based on a passage that's from a book that isn't even in the Old Testament. And Luther's quick to say, hey, if you read Jerome, Jerome says we can read these books, but we should not be building any doctrine on these books. Now, there's a whole lot of other issues at play in the Reformation. I'm just skimming the surface, right? I'm simplifying it radically. But Luther and the other reformers begin to find that some of the abuses that they see in the church, some of the theological questions that they have, some of the traditions that have been practiced for centuries are not found anywhere in the Bible. Some of them are based on passages in the Apocrypha. Some of them are just based on church tradition. And so they begin to seek reforms within the church, which 
will not work. <laughs> and so eventually they basically launch out of the church. They start their own movement. That's where we get this term Protestantism. That's where all of the new denominations, Lutherans and Anglicans and Presbyterians and eventually Baptists and all sorts of new groups, all denominations come from that are not Catholic, Protestant denominations. And one of the key things that comes out of the Protestant Reformation is removing the apocryphal books from the Old Testament. So Luther goes on to translate the Bible into German. And uh, believe it or not, when he does that, he translates the Apocrypha into German too. Because like like, uh, Jerome, he thinks they could still be useful to read, but he takes all of those additions to Esther and to Daniel, and he takes all the Apocryphal books. He takes them out of the Old Testament And he puts them in an appendix at the end, and he makes it really, really clear. These are not part of the Bible. There will be other translations into other languages like English that will follow, and they do the same. They move the Apocrypha to the end of the Bible, and then eventually, many Protestant translations of the Bible start just leaving these books out altogether. I mean, why put them even in the Bible? Why cause any confusion whatsoever. Now, uh, the Protestant Reformation, it shook the very foundations of the Catholic Church. And it took uh, a few years for the Catholic Church to adequately respond to all the allegations, to the abuses that were being said, to the theological debates that were being raised. And when they responded, they responded with a vengeance. Now remember, this is the middle 1500s, There are widespread political, national, ethnic ramifications in all of this. So the Protestant Reformation is not just about theology. Sometimes we tend to think it's just about theology and the Bible and those kind of things, but there are all sorts of political things that are all mixed into this. The papacy was losing enormous power all over Europe in places where Lutheranism and and the Reformed movement were taking root. Um, There were wars Uh, breaking out all over Europe. And so the Catholic Church finally responded very strongly by calling a council to deal with these issues. And it's called the Council of Trent. And coming out of the Council of Trent, they made some changes and reforms. Uh, They tried to deal with some of the abuses that they thought, uh, some of the allegations they thought were were credible, and they realized they did need to clean up their act in some ways. But on many of the doctrinal and theological issues... You could really say the Catholic Church at this time dug their heels in. And so on the issue of the Bible and the Apocrypha, they basically concluded this. Yes, these books were not included in the original Hebrew Bible. We all know that. We can read versions of the Hebrew manuscripts and see these books were not in there. But that does not mean that these Apocryphal books are not useful. And to throw them out now... (laughs) To suggest that they're not important now would undermine the way we've practiced our faith and the way we viewed them for 1,500 years. It potentially would undermine some practices and traditions like purgatory um, that we've held as very near and dear. They didn't say it in this way. I'm paraphrasing. But essentially, that's what they believed. And so they doubled down on keeping these apocryphal books. And essentially what they did is they came up with two new terms. 
Uh, they called the 66 original books of the Bible proto-canonical, and then they called the apocryphal books and editions deutero-canonical. Very technical words, but just think about it. Proto means first, deutero means second. So essentially what they're saying is there's this recognition that the books of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament are first in order and first in importance. And the apocryphal books are secondary in order or importance. (laughs) But they stopped short of taking these books out of the Bible. (laughs) And in fact, they still use the word canonical, right? They're deuterocanonical, meaning they're sort of second to the other books, but they're still canonical. They're still considered part of of the canon part of the Bible, even if in some of these terms, we're almost sort of indicating they have the second class status. And that's where things stand today. That's why if you look at a Catholic Bible, you will see that these books are still in there and they're called deuterocanonical. And there might be a a little description of what that means. And if you Look at a Protestant Bible, uh, which includes most of the contemporary translations like the NIV or the ESV or the Message or the New American Standard. These Bibles do not contain these books. Now, what do we do with all this? Well, this is getting really long, so let me just wrap things up fairly quickly. Uh, I have an enormous respect for the Catholic Church. Right, all this is, even as a Protestant, this is my heritage. This is if you're a Protestant, this is our heritage. Before, um, before the 1500s, our heritage was was the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, right? And I, I would say there's been way more division in the last 500 years within Christianity than we need. I, I think there's a, a place for Catholics and Protestants, and even Orthodox Christians to genuinely respect one another, uh, to work together, to see each other's faith as genuine and authentic, even if there are some differences still in some secondary beliefs or practices. Because in reality, on the foundational beliefs, on the central beliefs, we all agree on the same thing. We can all affirm the Apostles' Creed, right? We can all hold up the 66 books of the Old Testament and the New Testament as inspired and sacred and the basis for our beliefs and our doctrine and our practices. We can all agree on that. So I don't think that this difference when it comes to the Apocrypha needs to divide Christians or be a place that creates division. Uh, That said, as a historian and speaking as a Protestant, I think the evidence is pretty clear that these apocryphal books from the very beginning, they were important. They were useful. They include some some ancient wisdom from the Jewish people. They include some histories and some stories that are really important from the Jewish people at a really pivotal time in their nation. But it's also pretty clear they were never considered part of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Jerome, that amazing and preeminent Catholic translator, affirms 
this as well. He makes it really clear we shouldn't base doctrine on these books because they've never really been seen. And, and even Jesus himself never sees them as part of the Bible that he uses. The reformers drive this point home. And so, honestly, I think this is where the Council of Trent made a mistake. I think it was a good opportunity for them to have affirmed the perspective that Jerome had taken toward these, these books, to have said at that point, yeah, these books are good and useful, but we probably shouldn't circulate them with the Bible anymore because people think of them as the Bible and they're not the Bible. I also, as a historian, understand the historical circumstances at that time. And I get that making that kind of 180 degree turn would have been difficult, if not impossible, for an institution like the church to make at that time. It took some reformers who were willing to cut ties and break away to make those kinds of changes. So I think as Jesus followers now, uh, we can be curious about these books uh, I spent some time last night rereading some of them, and it's fascinating, right? There's good English translations of these books that are readily available. Um, the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible also contains a New Revised Standard Version of the Apocrypha, and you can easily buy a copy and read these books. But we should be mindful of their long history as well. We should be mindful that they were never included in the Old Testament to begin with. All right, that's enough for today. Uh, one big question we have not discussed yet, who preserved all of these ancient manuscripts? Do we have the original books of Moses and the prophets and the New Testament writings? And if we don't have the originals, why not? And how can we trust that the original Old Testament and New Testament writings how can we trust them if we don't actually have the original manuscripts? Those are questions we'll take up next time as we explore how the Bible was preserved through the centuries so that we can continue to read it for today. I hope this has been helpful. Thanks so much for listening.